you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Well, howdy, everyone. Welcome back to the ranch. Welcome back to what's the name of my podcast? It's called Prairie Justice, the Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. And uh, if you're listening to this, this is just after our three-hour extravaganza with the debut of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And if your ears are as sore as my tongue and throat were after doing that podcast, and considering that I took three weeks to do it in one of the worst cold snaps that I think we've seen in southern Alberta for a very long time, um, I hope you've recovered as much as I have. Um Certainly, I had a lot to talk about and a lot to do uh, on top of doing the radio drama and the narrations for that uh, podcast. And having said that, I think uh, I will be doing things a little bit different, I believe, with Leading Comics number two. I think I'm going to break those chapters up, uh, considering that I no longer have to do the introductions to any of the characters or to the Seven Soldiers again. And uh, that means you'll just be getting more episodes just as long, I suppose, when you put them all together. But uh, you'll be able to uh, take your leading comics in tinier doses. So I hope everyone appreciates that. And uh, I apologize if the the leading comics number one coverage was a bit of a bear. It was a, a bit of a bear for me as well. So... So today what I'm going to do, this is kind of a cleanup episode, and it does give me a chance to kind of rest my my vocal giblets, and I just want to uh, read some letters and some comments that have been uh, piling up since I've started this thing around the, um, I guess just after Christmas, and also got a little bit of comic news guess what Vidge is actually going to be in comics again coming this spring and we'll see how that turns out um, but uh, look for the star girl spring come spring break special it's uh, supposedly due out in May I don't know if the diamond solicits are out but there is a cover floating around uh, Facebook here and there so I hope everybody's seeing that uh, Definitely, Vidge is coming back as part of the set of a, a brand new rethought out Seven Soldiers. So I'm excited about that that we actually get to see Vigilante back in some form of pub publication. Um, <laughs> Vidge has a bit of a track record over the years uh, for being wallpaper, and he's not alone. And I think uh, that comes from being one of the Golden Age characters who is recognized through the years but uh, I believe you know standard superhero writers and such don't know what to do with Golden Age characters and they like to use them and I think they like to throw them into background scenes and as I say use them as wallpaper and I think Vigilante has been utilized far too much in that regard in in various series and that means of course that I have to cover him uh, when he does show up in things but you know what, um, if it dovetails in with a little bit of news and some feedback that we have, uh, as in this episode today, well, maybe so be it. That allows us to have a little bit of a break uh, from those uh, 1941, 1940 stories. And uh, 
not have to do so much audio drumming. And today, um, in that vein, I'm going to be covering Vigilante's appearance, such as it is, in Justice League number 193, and in particular, the All-Star Squadron preview pullout, and in All-Star Squadron number 1. Now, as I say, uh, he's wallpaper in these two books, but he fits into a chronology. When I started thinking about how I wanted to do this Vigilante podcast, I didn't want to dodge in and out. Um, once I just had my actual hands on those 1941 issues, I wanted to start from the beginning and go in a chronological outfit and sort of to try to follow not only the actual publication chronology, but also DC's retroactive continuity in how he fits into Earth 2 and in that whole uh, telling of World War II that Roy Thomas did in the early 1980s with All-Star Squadron. Now, uh, in that book, Roy Thomas uh, utilized Shining Knight more than he did most of the Seven Soldiers, um, but they are there, and they are there in this, uh, this preview and this All-Star Squadron number one that I'm going to do today. And now, don't worry, I'm not going to do them as audio dramas. Um, I just don't feel it's worth it. It's just uh, a way of mentioning it, and there is also a reason why, also another reason why I don't want to fully cover those issues, and that's because there is a podcast out right now that is fully dedicated um, to the All-Star Squadron and in indexing it, and they have just debuted almost within days um, of uh, Prairie Justice, and it was just a complete coincidence. I've never had anything to do with Billy or Herman, who have started A World on Fire, the All-Star Squadron podcast, but they are uh, sort of uh, following my same pace. Uh, they seem to produce uh, an episode about once every two weeks, and uh, I guess on average that's about where I've been as well with the Seven Soldiers of Victory giving me a lot of grief here in the last two or three weeks. Uh, but hopefully I can get back on schedule. And so you can have, uh, so we can get through these uh, Vigilante 1941-1942 stories a little bit faster than we have been. So uh, I'd also like to 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 play a, uh, their promo later on when I'm ready, and I'm also going to play a promo for an, also in another exciting podcast uh, venture that has come out from the Fire and Water Network. And rather than me explain it, let me just play it. <music> Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. All-Star Squadron. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrestrial. Commander Steel. Seven Soldiers of Liberty. Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire and Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of themed shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the golden age of comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. 
We'll launch this new series with an ongoing show called Justice Society Presents Crisis, in which Rob and Shag go through each of the classic team-ups between the Justice League and the Justice Society. Then joining the podcast feed will be the Starman Chronicles. Chris and Cindy continue their coverage of James Robinson's epic series from beginning to end. Later in the year, Ryan Daly and Max Romero will tackle the Vertigo title, Sandman Mystery Theater. And two years later, Ryan will cancel it. That's probably. Then in the coming months and years, we'll be adding further ongoing shows and one-off specials celebrating other beloved characters and comics related to the JSA of any era, from the 1940s to today. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Thanks, Fire and Water Gang, and thanks for putting out JSA Presents. I think the uh, since the long-lamented Tales of the Justice Society uh, that Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey worked so hard on, I believe between, I want to say 2010 and 2015, it might have been a few years longer than that, uh, the, the Internet has certainly been uh, deprived of, of a regular look at Earth 2 and the entire uh, whole milieu of what the Golden Age represents in comics. And uh, at least I'd like to think that the fans are treating the Justice Society and our Golden Age um, honor and the Golden Age that we honor. I guess that's what I was trying to say. With a little bit more respect, and I have to say DC Comics seems to uh, have been treating them as well. Uh, but at any rate, um, it's, it's sometimes when you don't like what's going on in a certain uh, genre, then it's really nice to be able to go back and look at what has been and know that you weren't crazy for liking those comics. There was actually something there. And uh, hopefully between JSA Presents and Herman and Billy's uh, World on Fire, and any other effort is out there besides uh, this Prairie Justice podcast. Hopefully we can relate to the world what was so special about Golden Age comics. Because, hey, you don't get the Silver Age or Bronze Age or, or any other ages without uh, those young bucks sitting there in uh, sweating over typewriters and drawing boards in the offices in New York City and just throwing out pulp hero adventures one after the other. And let's face it, the reason we go even to these large budget movies and watch these TV shows at all comes from that 1940s origin. So, end of lecture. Um, now, something that else had also suffered with the length of the Seven Soldiers uh, special uh, recent was my Greg Saunders Radio Rodeo or Rodeo Radio. I still haven't figured out which sounds better, Radio Rodeo or Rodeo Radio. So we did not have a uh, a special edition of uh, being able to having a, a full song being played. And I thought since we're doing a cleanup show, you've probably wondered where that uh, stinger comes from at the beginning of this podcast. A little... Well, that comes from a Canadian country music band that probably nobody has ever heard of. I can barely find anything out about them on the internet. And I was actually around when they were a big thing on Canadian rodeo 
radio. <laughs> see, I'm getting that mixed up again. And uh, I actually did see them perform a couple of times um, when I was in my younger days, uh, when I was reading All-Star Squadron, but I was also seemed to be chasing girls. I used to go to a little bar called the Esmeralda's Territorial Saloon. And doesn't that sound like a bar for a historian to hang out? And it was in Lethbridge, Alberta, and there used to be a lot of name Canadian country bands that used to come into that bar. So uh, I used to be able to go in there for a very cheap cover price, hear a lot, and see a lot of good music, and come home with a lot of signed cassettes, some of which I still have. And I believe I also saw them at an outdoor festival at a place called uh, Brooks, Alberta, at a thing called the Cattle Country Jam. Uh, a very drunken uh, Woodstock meets the prairie sort of a thing. But anyway, without any other ado, um, I don't have too much to, more to say about the Midnight Rodeo Band other than that I always believed they had a very original style. Um, what I do know about them was their lead singer and leader was a man named Chess Lee, who you can still be still find on YouTube, uh, sans the Midnight Rodeo Band as he plays a lot of songs about uh, being a Métis. And if you don't know what that is in law, Métis is a kind of a French word, uh, stands for mixed, or mixed blood. And it stands for people who are of both um, indigenous origins, such as Cree, Blackfoot, Ojibwa, and um, European origins. And in uh, Canadian law, we tend to think of uh, French Canadian Métis, but there are also English Scots and um, other blends of Métis as well. And the Métis are recognized as an indigenous uh, force in Canadian law. So uh, they sort of have a distinctive sound, distinctive music, and that sort of a thing. And hopefully, uh, as uh, Ray Sanders Radio Rodeo uh, progresses over the years. I can uh, play a lot of that, some of that Métis um, indigenous uh, sort of a sound um, for you. But for now, I'm just going to play uh, the full version of that stinger that you hear at the beginning. And it's the Midnight Rodeo Band with Nashville Just Wrote Another Cheatin' Song. Yes, it's that doesn't that sound like a country song, but uh, I think you'll enjoy the very unusual nature of the song. The bottle is empty, the glasses are dry, and reality is closed for another night. She's taking me where Ruby's waiting. Jack Daniels got me feeling light. Mary's at home, the kids are half grown. Seems like we never got along. Morning is breaking, my heart is aching, and Nashville just wrote another cheating song. Broadway, you're cold when your streets are alone. The Tennessee sound will warm you up. 
seems like we had to live it up From the rendezvous room to the turn of the key Wonder just where did I go wrong Cause the coffee is cold I'm all alone And Nashville just wrote another cheating song Hit your heart Tears you apart What more can I really say Oh, some men grow old Staying at home Some just don't know Where they belong Come sundown at night I'll be there on time And Nashville will write Another cheating song I think I'll get on to it with your feedback. Uh, feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on our Facebook page, uh, which is Prairie Justice, the Vigil- Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Uh, if you need the actual URL, it's facebook.com slash vigilante41. Uh, our email is vigilantecast, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, also under uh, Prairie Justice, the Great Sounders Vigilante Podcast. And the short handle for that is at Tolton slash Gord. And, of course, we also have the uh, Ranger Gord's Roundup WordPress page as well. And those are all in the show notes on the Podbean that I use for uh, to host the uh, podcast as well. And hopefully, I believe they come through onto the Apple feed. If they don't, let me know and I'll do something about that. TikTok, forget it. Parlor. <laughs> and Instagram, sorry, I tried to have a millennial show me that and I still don't know what it's for. And I suppose there are ways you could actually put a, uh, a stamp on a letter if you wanted. Uh, let me know if you actually want to do a real live letter. I don't know. Do people do that anymore? Every now and then I get one. It would be interesting to see. Good, nice experiment. From Facebook Messenger, we have Mr. Chris Franklin, the unlovelier half of the Supermates, and also host of, with his lovely wife Cindy, of Supermates. The Hilarious House of Franklinstein, JLU Cast, and about a million other things. And soon to be coming up, and also host, along with Rob Kelly, on the Fire and Water Network of the Superman 3 Minute to Minute Cast. I hope I got that uh, nomenclature correct. In which they're going to be looking at one of the greatest Superman movies that never was. <laughs> Uh, okay, Chris through Facebook Messenger, who has also been supportive of this cast. He says, Gord, catching up on podcasts after a holiday break. 
and I just listened to your first episode of Prairie Justice. Fantastic debut, and I loved your recreation of the story. Uh, listening to episode two right now, you hit the ground galloping, my friend. Oh, and we will definitely have you on JLU cast when Vigilante shows up. So that's a little ways down the way, the uh, down the transom. But uh, thank you very much, Chris, and I really look forward to that appearance whenever that pops up. And from my webpage site, and I'm really surprised anybody found Ranger Gord's Roundup at WordPress.com. That's actually my personal site I usually use for my writing and such, and I just decided to utilize that as a as a base for this podcast because I really, really hate setting up uh, specific websites, and um, I just didn't really want to be bothered at the time with setting up a special site for Prairie Justice. But uh, I got a missive from Mr. Martin Gray. All the way from across the pond in my rumored ancestral home of Scotland. Well, that's enough of that. I'm not going to uh, embarrass Mr. Martin by trying to imitate his accent, because I know he hates that. But it was uh, very nice words that Martin said. Congratulations on your fantastic new podcast. I've not read many vid stories. I met him in JLA number 100 and 102, caught reprints in Adventure Comics, and well, that's it. But you have to respect a character with such a long pedigree. I love the radio play format. Well done. You really brought the story to life with the hard-boiled dialogue, the music, and sound effects. From the voice you give Betty, though, I don't think you like her. I'm just going to jump in there for a minute. Goes, well, it's not so much that I like her. I just don't. I think she's underutilized as a romantic interest. I think she just serves one purpose, and that's to try to. Uh, to throw the scent off of Greg Saunders being the vigilante by buying into his Clark Kent routine that he pulls in, in being sort of a fake drugstore cowboy. Back to Martin's letter. It always strikes me as odd that Home on the Range has such a prominent, is it called, a slide guitar. It makes it sound like a Hawaiian-type record. Yes, uh, that version by Gene Autry did have... Uh, I believe, a dobro in it, uh, which you could also call a Hawaiian guitar, and it's also the the Ford bearer to the country music version of the steel guitar as well. And I guess just at the time, uh, a dobro or a Hawaiian guitar just sounded exotic, so that's probably why they put that in there. And Martin also asks, did Greg sing in the cereal? And by the cereal, um, he doesn't mean a bowl of shreddies. He is talking about the 1947 uh, series of serialized movies that appeared in theaters called Vigilante. You know, the name has just popped out of my head. I'm sorry. But at any rate, um, yeah, starring Ralph Bird as the Vigilante. And yes, there is singing in that, uh, that series of serialized adventures. Um, and I believe Ralph Bird does his own singing in that. Um, I have seen it, and um, it has disappeared from YouTube. I know I saw it on YouTube several years ago. I've managed to track down a DVD of uh, Greg Saunders' Hero of the West. I think that, or Vigilante Hero of the West is what it's called. Uh, but it was kind of a sketchy site, and I really didn't want to plug in my um, 
credit card number to it. So we'll keep working on trying to find myself a, a physical copy or a, some kind of a streaming copy of that Vigilante Hero of the West. And yes, I do want to cover that. It's uh, it, As it comes in in 1947, it's a little while down the road, so I've got some time. Um, back to Martin again. You said you doubted that artist Mort Meskin intended the jeans to be colored white. And we'll know the jeans were meant to be white when that sound effect reads, wham. To me, white is his iconic look. He says, I like the white hat too. I don't care about realism. As you said, Greg's a comic book cowboy. That allows for lovely bright colors. Well, with you and Chris Franklin, um, that's two for the white hat and, and pants. Uh, it, I don't know. I look at white pants, I think of Mr. Rourke from Fantasy Island. And I look at a white hat, I just think of uh, Roy Rogers or something like that. Um, and Martin says, roll on episode two. So that's episode one he was talking about. So thanks so much, Martin. And coming from your fine intellect, your words mean a lot to me. So stay warm. And so that is from WordPress. And now from email from VigilanteCast at gmail.com. I have a very honorable letter from the uh, very erudite Professor Allen, a professor of economics somewhere in central Ohio. I believe he's around the Columbus area, not to out him for anything like that. And I hear he also moonlights as the, uh, as the central Ohio charge aid affairs for the Latvian mission to the United States. And Professor Allen. I should also say he is the host of the Rel Relatively Geeky Network, which hosts Shortbox Showcase and the Quarter Bin Podcast, and with his daughter M, also uh, hosts uh, Dorkness to Light, which is a sort of an examination of uh, how comics and, uh, and religion uh, dovetail. So it's very interesting man, and so those uh, all are well looking out for and as I said probably the world's number one fan of Doctor Doom and since we are all on this planet as fans of Doctor Doom that is saying a lot so Professor Allen writes thoroughly enjoying the podcast Gord very well produced it's exciting to hear your passion about the character your love of the western setting and your knowledge of handgun spurs and other aspects of the genre about 15 years ago, I read a thriller that has a scene of a character being hanged via a melting block of ice, and I thought it was so original. I'd never seen it before, and gave the author a lot of credit for coming up with that. And then here we are, in 1941, with the Mortz, Weisinger and Meskin, using that technique more than six de decades beforehand. And even more weird than that on the day that i listened to this episode i read a collection of old dick tracy newspaper strips and guess what mrs Pruneface uses a similar trick to try to do away with tracy so i guess it really was not an original idea also the basic crime in the third issue where something is hidden in the horse's hoof that is very similar to the basic events of the sherlock holmes story the six napoleons and I guess my only comment to that, just uh, deviating from the letter from a moment, is, well, for all you can say about Mort Weisinger, he was well-read. 
and I'm sure he knew his Sherlock Holmes, and I'm sure he uh, a few, skimmed a few Dick Tracys over the time. And like a, any good writer, he steals from the best. And Alan finishes, Thanks for the shout-out in Episode 1 where you told your podcast origin story. Not at all, Professor. Um, I have to put credit where credit is due. Without uh, the inspiration of the, the podcasters that I mentioned and so many others that I missed, um, I don't think I'd ever had the gumption to ever do this. And Professor Allen also finishes, keep up the music and also keep up the good work. Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Dorkness to Light. And I should also add, if you don't know what the Quarter Bin uh, podcast is about, Professor Allen reads comics and he doesn't seem to mind what kind of comic he reads. He'll read anything from a Harvey to a Marvel or to a Classics Illustrated and he only has one rule. That comic cannot cost more than a quarter. And I have to ask, why, Professor Allen, do you do it that way? And Professor Allen, I know, would just answer, money. And thank you very much, Prof. And again, from VigilanteCast at gmail.com, Dave McElvaney from Pennsylvania. Greetings, Ranger Gord. Greetings, Ranger Gord. Another enjoyable episode with Greg Vigilante Saunders. I continue to enjoy your voice acting and presenting the stories in basically the form of radio plays. Even though that genre was more popular before I was born, I remember listening to episodes of The Lone Ranger on the radio when I was young. They were probably recordings of older shows, since I was hearing them in the early 1960s, and I don't imagine new radio drama series were being produced by then. But they helped me prepare to listen to episodes of The Adventures of Superman that I would eventually discover on cassette tapes and CDs. I'm much more than an auditory imaginer than a visual one, so I love listening to stories even more than watching them on TV or movie screens. So I especially enjoy the way you're presenting these stories. Thank you for that, Dave. Yes, uh, I'm a radio guy myself, and uh, I think the saving grace for me of podcasts is that Radio sucks <laughs> right now, and uh, it, it just doesn't seem to be coming back, you know, between uh, political talk radio and crappy top 40s and uh, that music formats that just go around and around and around. I, I, I don't even, it's quite heartbreaking to me what has happened to radio, but thankfully podcasts have filled that void. And back to Dave, it certainly makes sense to move Billy Gunn's shooting gallery to Coney Island as a boardwalk amusement park area. It's interesting to see Billy and Vigilante developing a kind of hero sidekick relationship, and I'll be watching that as time goes on. I suspect that Vig will become less short with Billy and more joshing over time, because a hero who is impatient with his sidekick is less likable. What are you saying, Dave? Vigilantes... Superman's got nothing on me is funny, coming from a gun-toting hero, given that Superman is bulletproof and Vidge isn't. I have to say that Shade's scheme here is pretty golden age, killing horses so he can check to find out which one is carrying the hidden capsule. Since it's established that Shade is, is in it for the money, it might have made more sense for him to kidnap the horses and hold them for ransom. They must be pretty valuable. Killing valuable horses seems pretty wasteful and unprofitable. Well, he is a crook. 
Of course, I'm not a professional villain or even an amateur one, so what do I know? I rem And Dave carries on about the rope-skipping rhyme, which I had not... I did not remember. Teddy bear, teddy bear, turn around. Teddy bear, teddy bear, touch the ground. From my childhood. I hadn't thought about that in probably more than 50 years, but it brought instant memories of youthful fun. The rhyme involves all sorts of activities the jumper must do, like touch the sky, snow your shoe, and ending with runaway as the rope jumper runs out of the rope to be replaced by the next jumper. Thanks for that, uh, Dave. I was not aware of... of uh, rope jumping rhymes i i remember you know watching kids do jump rope and i don't remember the rhymes and uh dave finishes thank you for grace saunders radio rodeo and ian tyson's horse thief moon which i'd never heard so i'll have to look for more of mr tyson's songs it was good to hear a bit of yodeling which is all too rare nowadays yeah i'm old what can i say live long and prosper dave milk mcelvaney and all i have to say to your uh, end of your letter, Dave, is Yes, I spent a lot of time out by myself in the middle of the prairie. That's where you learn to yodel. And I have yet another letter here from Dave McElvady in response to the recent Seven Soldiers of Victory podcast, uh, which I believe was episode four. Leading Comics, number one, Blueprint for Crime. I'm forgetting my own numbering. And apparently so did Dave, although I didn't notice. Now, one of the reasons, uh, I apparently on my my feed, I have three podcast promos going. Uh, the first one that I wasn't happy with and I redid it. And then after I had put out about two or three episodes, I redid a, a totally different promo. So that's probably throwing your episode numbering off, Dave. And uh, Dave says, I must apologize for my mistitled previous email, which I gave as episode four, which should have been episode three. I will try to be careful in the future, lest I confuse either you or your listeners. Well, Dave, I was born for confused. And as for the listeners, they've had learned to pay for their mistakes. I'm oh, sorry, I was uh, slipping into Professor Allen's Dr. Doom there. I compliment you for doing such a good job with a such a long, involved story. I can see why you might have gone through a lot of throat lossages with all the voices and narration you did in this one. I also have to say again how much I enjoy the music you choose in these episodes. I almost cheered out loud when I heard the wonderful theme from the Magnificent Seven, an absolutely apt choice for the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And I laughed out loud each time I heard ELO's turn to stone. Although as soon as I heard the name Rex Mason for the movie star, I was expecting... The metamorpho theme. Ah, uh, you know what, Dave? I was expecting to put that in too, but uh, as I believe I told you in my response, um, I lost my underlying music track as I was finishing up, and I had to rebuild it all, sort of from scratchy notes and memories. And I guess the uh, the metamorpho theme um, kind of uh, lost in the memory cut, uh, went down the memory hole. But I do know it, and uh, I think everybody that talks about Metamorpho on podcasts uses that song. It's Metamorpho, 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 Metamorpho. And uh, just to make it uh, with the theme, yodel There you are. Uh, I won't play the, th the Metamorpho theme, and unless Metamorpho ever comes up again. And uh, who knows, when I get to JLA 100, it might... 
Um, it was fascinating to hear some of the background to the collaboration between national and all-American publications in the creation of the Justice Society of America, Pride and National, DC's creation of leading comics and the Seven Soldiers. Like you, I don't think I've ever seen a comic book story that actually calls them the Law's Legionnaires. Well, they're kind of out there, uh, but usually it's a secondary sort of thing, Dave. And uh, as I said, in the Golden Age... They never called them the Seven Soldiers, at least on covers or on logos, which is really strange. Um, so I believe it's really a modern-day Len Wayne affectation. Uh, and back to Dave. My ears perked up when I heard you say that Leading Comics number 1 had a variant cover, but was relieved when you said it was actually an Ashcan cover. I say, quote, relieved, unquote, because I've never been a fan of the idea of variant covers. Me neither, Dave. As a long-time Silver Age comics fans, I think variant covers deprive fans of a common experience. If there are multiple different covers for the same issue of a comic, fans will not have a universal memory of that comic. Rather, each person's memory will begin with the cover that they have or had. Um, one of my best friends uh, and I became friends in the first place by bonding over vivid memories of the striking and iconic cover uh, Batman number 156 from June 1963, featuring the story Robin Dies at Dawn. Don and I were teaching colleagues, and when he learned I was a comics fan, he asked if I could tell him if a comic book cover he remembered from boyhood had been real, or if he might have just dreamed it. He started describing the cover, and I interrupted saying, Oh, that's real. That's Robin Dies at Dawn. I love that one, and I can show you in the greatest Batman stories ever told. I, I think I've seen it, Dave. If there had been variant covers in those days, he and I might not have seen that same cover and might not have shared the common vivid memory. So that's a that's a good commentary on variants. That's uh, usually not the reason they, they use variants, as Professor Middleton would say. It's for money. I understand the idea of Ashcan comics as a way of protecting copyright, copyright or trademark, but fans wouldn't normally see those, so they wouldn't affect the comic reading experience. Give your voice a well-deserved rest, and I'll look forward to your next episode of Prairie Justice. Thank you. Live long and prosper. Dave McElvaney, and he has a PS. I challenge Dave in the podcast to make sure, because Dave is a... A retired math teacher, and if a math teacher can never actually retire, to uh, count the stars of the, of, uh, the Star Spangled Kid's costume, make sure he had the requisite 48 that would be correct. And uh, Dave says, I haven't counted the stars, but I am certain he'd have made sure that he had the proper 48. And any deviation from that in the comics would have been a chronic error on the part of that artist. And of course, 48 stars, as there would have been on the flag... Um, before the uh, introduction of Hawaii and Alaska into the Union in 1959. Thank you, Dave. And I'll throw a quick shout-out to some people who have played um, our Prairie Justice promo on their own shows, which is a, a real honor and a, a surprise when I'm walking around with my ears or listening to the podcast with my wife, and all of a sudden I hear, and I hear myself coming on to someone else's podcast. And that's kind of a vicarious thrill. Um, Andy Leyland, on his Christmas edition of uh, Palace of Glittering Delights, sorry, I almost forgot it. Uh, the aforementioned Professor Alan Middleton, 
uh, Chris Franklin on the JLU cast. Um, a new podcast that I'll be talking about later called A World on Fire, the All-Star Squadron podcast. Shag has played it, of course, on uh, JLI International, the Boahaha podcast. And also uh, Robin Kelly played it on their Sunday FW Presents show. And I have also heard it on the World's Worst Comic Book Collection, World's Worst Comic Book Podcast, um, and on uh, Mike Zumo's Man of Screen Podcast. So thank you for all. And if I have missed anybody, well, I guess I, I, I can't say I listen to everyone's podcast. I do try hard, but I have a lot of varied interests when it comes to podcasting. Comics is just one of them, so... Thank you all the same for anyone who has. Now, I have something that I'd never expected to ever have. And that's news and news sightings about the vigilante occurring in comic books. Yes, DC Comics. For a guy that's uh, pushing 80 years old and has had limited appeal... And has been mostly used as wallpaper by DC, I don't know, ever probably since Crisis on Infinite Earths. I do have news about the Vigilante. And specifically about the Seven Soldiers of Victory. They're coming back. Now this probably dovetails with the uh, return of the Stargirl TV series coming into its second season this spring. And I don't have dates for this, but this has popped up and uh, made the rounds around Facebook. That Stargirl Spring Break Special number one cover. It'll be coming out in May. I haven't seen the solicit yet. I've been looking for it. But you can bet that uh, I'll be picking that up, either of Comixology or, or possibly a physical. I, I may actually deign to darken the doorway of, an, of a local comic book store again. Just to pick that up. and But the cover is uh, what we have. And it's very interesting. Of course, we've got uh, Stargirl, Courtney Whitmore, featured. And underneath, uh, her dad or stepdad, Pat Dugan, the original Stripesy in his Stripe robot outfit. And then we have three stars on each side. And yes, I can count. That makes eight, not seven. In that great Seven Soldiers of Victory tradition of having eight soldiers. On the left side, we see at the top, Green Arrow. And it's not the, our Golden Age Green Arrow. It's our great old fungus-faced uh, friend from the 1970s. Uh, the Neil Adams version of Oliver Queen. Uh, beneath him is a character, uh, looks female, in a hood with a red mask. Now this could be the Tia character that was in the Green Arrow series in the early 2000s. Um, uh, I should say Mia is what I was trying to say, but I got confused in there because Mia in the Arrow TV series came out as Tia. So... And both characters played versions, uh, their own versions of Speedy. So this is either Mia or Tia, or possibly some other character. Uh, looks to be, oh, I don't know, possibly African-American or Asian. 
or or South Asian, I'm not sure. I really don't know who this character is supposed to be. And at the bottom of the page, the left-hand page, well, there's Greg in all his splendor, all his handkerchief face, giving us that great big grin from underneath the Stetson. On the right-hand side, kind of starting from the top, we have Sir Justin, and he's sporting the beard that I believe the janitor Justin had in the Stargirl TV series of season one. Below that, we have uh, the Crimson Avenger character that appeared in JSA in the Jeff Johns era, or the James Robinson Jeff Johns era. I can't remember quite who had created this character. But um, she was an African-American woman who somehow found Lee Travis's Colts in a Detroit pawn shop and uh, had a mission to uh, avenge the dead. And our mystery eighth, well, we have a black figure with a question mark in front of us. So it's either the Riddler or perhaps it's a new version or an old version of Wing. And uh, this is a great throwback to GLA 100 to 102 when uh, we, we, they had the big question mark of uh, who was the unknown soldier that lied in the Himalayas. Well, spoilers on a 45-year, oh my God, 50-year-old comic book it's pushing. Um, that unknown soldier, of course, was Wing. So... That's a bit of news. I don't know what this comic's going to be about, but I'm sure it's going to tie in to the TV series. Does that mean we're going to be seeing Greg Saunders on the screen? After almost 10 years of Berlantiverse TV shows and them using the word vigilante, are they actually going to show the man who owns the name? Time will tell. Stay tuned. And since we last chatted... I have a Twitter account for Prairie Justice, and it is called, guess what, Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Original, huh? And the handle is at Tolton uh, Capital Gord. So uh, I did not note that as of uh, Episode 4 with the Seven Soldiers. I just had too much to get out there to be able to deal with that in, in that point in time. So this is why this is a good cleanup episode. And um, I've had a really good run through that. I've had uh, a ton of followers. I, I know it's kind of de rigueur to name all of your followers on, on, on Twitter, uh, on your podcasts. But uh, quite frankly, I just don't do that good at record keeping on this sort of thing. If you be, uh, the All-Star Squadron podcast, which I'll be mentioning later. Uh, hey, everybody, a new podcast starting the Vigilante, a journey starting in the Golden Age. Listen in. Uh, thanks, Billy and Herman, um, and of course your podcast is doing great guns as well. Uh, Warlock Thanos podcast is it's not Two Gun Kid or Genie Hex, but thought this might be of interest. And uh, let's see, a few of interest. Uh, Ed Moore Jr., who uh, I believe used to run a Green Arrow podcast and a Doctor Fate podcast. I don't know if those are still running. And uh, quite frankly, I forget their names. I haven't been a while since I've, I've seen them pop up. So, Ed, uh, let me know if, if your podcasts are still going. I, I believe uh, I got lost in the trans in the uh, in the feed somewhere. And Ed Moore Jr. Uh, says I started my 2021 JLA Satellite Area reading with Justice League of America Volume 178, 
And on this very day, I discovered that at Tolton.Gord, or at Tolton.Gord, are on the same night. Coincidence? I think not. So, thank you, Ed, and uh, that was a great... Uh, I love those kinds of coincidences when they happen. Sometimes the universe unfolds as they should. And I also wanted to note... Um, oh, I was also had a special mention from... Uh, Diablo Frank, of all people, and I say of all people because he's a special guy. He knows why. Uh, and uh, Rolled Spine Podcasts. And uh, thank you very much for that shout-out, uh, Frank. And Into the Weird, which is also run by Billy D. and uh, Herman from All-Star Squadron. Uh, by the way, I'm enjoying Prairie Justice, having lots of fun with it. And there's one more note. Oh, Martin Gray on Twitter. I've not read enough Vigilante Tales to consider myself a fan, but this new podcast from at RM Ranger is a heck of a ride. Subscribed. And our at RM Ranger is my personal Twitter. So, you know what? Follow me on either, either, or it doesn't really matter. And good old Kyle Benning, who's getting back on the podcast wheel after... Uh, some personal dramas, and um, thank God he is, because I sure love his uh, his very interesting way of podcasting. He basically gets in his car, turns on his recorder, and talks. And when his recorder turns off, he's got a podcast. So I'm so impressed that somebody can do uh, something like that so professionally, with very little editing, and with just such a, a bare minimum of equipment. So he's, he's an inspiration. And he runs the KSCGSF podcast. And that's what he's calling it now. That stands for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. And uh, Gord, listening to episode three right now, and which I talked about not having a lot of uh, continuing storylines through Golden Age comics. And Kyle just wants to point out that Superman had some continuing storylines in the Golden Age that ran through action including a story on war profiteering, as well as some ongoing drama with Ultra Humanite and his body swapping. So, maybe if I paid some attention to those action comics issues when I'm reading Vigilante, uh, if I paid some attention to the big guy, maybe I'll see that. So, thank you very much for that, Kyle. Appreciate that. And now as my compensation for missing this department in the last episode, here is a second edition of Gray Saunders Radio Rodeo with Kenny Price. So as we started our mutual podcast, Billy Dunleavy and Herman, uh, sorry, I've forgotten your last name right now at this point in time. Uh, it's on hands. Everybody knows who I'm talking about. Uh, started a World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast, and I sent them in a congratulatory note, told them what I was about, and um, so we've kind of been a mutual admiration society ever since. And... Um, I thank uh, Herman and Billy for starting this at this point in time, even though they couldn't possibly know what my plan was, that I was going to cover Vigilante in uh, those All-Star Squadron issues, and I really was kind of not looking forward to it, because as I've said before, he's got a very, very minimal postage stamp role in either of those books, although he does appear 
you know, somewhat along with another of the heroes on on the cover of All Star Squadron One, that very iconic cover. Uh, and uh, Herman also gave a great rundown of the history of Pearl Harbor. And uh, I'll tell you, um, in both of the episodes that I listened to that covered the Pearl Harbor aspects of uh, All Star Squadron One Zero through uh, Three, as it were. Uh, I couldn't fault him a bit on any of his history, and uh, believe me, I'm a little bit more discriminating on that than I am on anything else, because in real life, I am a historian, and Pearl Harbor is one of my jams, and I am actually currently writing a book on the Second World War and the Pacific War, mostly um, in the North Pacific as it pertains uh, to the coast of Canada and Alaska, uh, but Hawaii, of course, and Pearl Harbor was a large uh large aspect of those uh those campaigns so though ever since i was a kid I've, I've always loved to learn about pearl harbor i've been there several times been through the site and all of the different museums um across honolulu and waikiki and uh, really have a profound respect for that history and uh, so i really look forward to the all-star squadron podcast and i wish billy and herman Great luck with this right now, and uh, so far it sounds wonderful, and uh, I think of it as a good companion podcast to my own, um, as it were, because as I've said, I am tracking this through the end of 1941 right now as we go into 1942, and of course that is the United States' involvement um, in the Second World War begins and at least as far as the Pacific campaigns concerned when they were very rudely brought into that on that December morning in uh, 1941 and of course uh, I have to also mention that Canada had been a part of uh, involved in World War II ever since September 10th 1939 but not as far as the Pacific as is concerned uh, we had sent a thousand regulars to Hong Kong uh, to help the British garrison that uh, that doomed facility. And on the same day that Pearl Harbor hit, um, Canadian forces took a, an extreme toll of casualties, deaths, and, um, and, and prison for, imprisonment for four years um, under the Imperial Japanese um, from that invasion of Hong Kong. So it wasn't just Pearl Harbor on that day. Um, uh, the Japanese Empire, as it were, as to distinguish from Japanese people itself, um, was running amok through the Pacific. And uh, as my own research has pursued, they also had uh, uh, submarines off of our coasts, off the coasts of California, Oregon, state of Washington, Alaska, and the province of British Columbia as well. And so... Uh, you know, nobody really understood um, how far this war could go and, quite frankly, how how the Japanese could be expected to carry it out. And uh, we had a rude awakenings of what the strength of the Japanese Empire was at that point in time. And, of course, bolstered as they were um, by allies, um, Nazi Germany, and uh, the Mussolini's Italy as well. 
although that was a little bit of a lesser force. And uh, very interesting um, to also come about of this in Pearl Harbor. Uh, just hours before Franklin Roosevelt made his famous speech to Congress on December 8th, a day which will live in infamy, uh, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and his uh, cabinet, which, as I've stated, had been fighting the Second World War on the Atlantic and on the European continent uh, for two years up to that point in time, and, of course, the, the overrun of Hong Kong, also declared war on Japan at that point in time, um, virtually simultaneously as an order in council of the Canadian Parliament. Um, so, uh, Canada and the United States, uh, they were partners in, uh, in all theaters of war at that point in time. And I mention that because uh, it's a point of pride. I'm a Canadian, I'm a Western Canadian, and uh, uh, the Alaska Highway, uh, you know, came through my t uh, part of the territory, not the highway itself, but the supply of it as far as uh, supplies going to uh, uh, northern British Columbia and Yukon and Alaska to, uh, to build that highway that went to Fairbanks. Um, in the 1950s, my dad ran a gas station right on the Montana-Alberta border, and uh, he could see all of the different... Um, army units and later on civilians that were going up to explore the Alaska Highway and they had to pr travel pretty much the whole length of the province of Alberta to get there. Also from Great Falls, Montana, which uh, I live uh, in somewhat proximity to, was a base that supplied over there and shipped uh, supplies of Lend-Lease equipment to the Soviet Union through Alberta and over the uh, Alaskan continent, over the Bering Strait, and right across Siberia. Some 8,000 warplanes, 20 warships, and just countless billions of dollars in aid and, uh, and equipment. And that virtually went over our heads here in southern Alberta. So there was, uh, when you say peacetime, not everywhere. There, there was really not anywhere in Canada that wasn't touched by the war at one point or another. And uh, my country had, uh, by the war's end, ten, a full 10% of its population in uniform, and that was men and women uh, serving in various capacities uh, around the world. And so that was, uh, that was a very significant contribution that we made in manpower and production and came out of it with the world's uh, third largest navy, depending on how you count the ships. So, um, that was my little blast at uh, World War II, and um, I'm going to just let uh, Billy D and Herman run their, po their uh, promo right now, and then I'll have my little, uh, I hope to be very brief take on All-Star Squadron Zero and Number One. <laughs> The World on Fire, an All-Star Squadron podcast. Join your hosts, Billy D. And Herman, as we take a deep dive into the seminal DC Comics series created by Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler. 
we'll be covering the series issue by issue, spotlighting our favorite characters. And talking about the historical tie-ins as well. So join us every month in A World on Fire, and All-Star Squadron podcast. Coming in December 2020 to a podcatcher near you. some war bonds just hearing that all right man line up oh okay sorry sorry we're back up that just got me in a bit of a mood there thanks billy d and herman wonderful promo and wonderful show too uh, i think you're about four shows in and i'm just having a blast with it so now on to our all-star squadron look at the debut of number zero issue and number one now when i say number zero um i'm kind of throwing you a little bit of a bum steer they never actually called this uh, first mm, semi-chapter of All-Star Squadron a zero. That's sort of a newer tem- terminology that they tend to use in comics now. In 1981, when this came out, it was actually a preview that actually did appear in a different comic. And it was, that was Justice League of America number 193. And they called that the All-Star Squadron Preview Pullout. Please don't pull it out. Okay, I'll explain that in a moment. Um, this issue of Justice League uh, was, was 193. It was cover dated August 1981. But you could buy it on sale on May 7th, 1981. Just as Ranger Gord was counting his credits and hoping to graduate high school. Which I did. Uh, it was uh, as far as Justice League story inside of it. It's also kind of a landmark story uh, by Jerry Conway and none other than the fantastic George Perez. And thank God I said Perez right. And it's called Secret of Genesis. And just a brief uh, uptake on that. This was the origin of the Red Tornado Part Two, and this is, was uh, ah, spoilers on a forty-year-old comic here. But this was when the Red Tornado first learned the secret of his origin, that his android body was actually fueled by an old JLA villain called the Tornado Tyrant, uh, also known as the Tornado Champion. And if you care about the Red Tornado, some do, some don't. I kind of do. It was uh, very much a... a turning point in his uh, his story. And it's too bad the Red Tornado didn't turn out to be a, a bigger thing than he did. Uh, I rather enjoyed the character, if you could call an android a character. Let's move on, because we're actually here to talk about what is in the middle of this book. And it's called, as we said, the Special All-Star Squadron Preview. And <laughs> DC spells preview throughout this issue in two different ways. Uh, preview with a V-U-E or preview with a V-I-E-W. Oh, editors. Now, if I look on the cover... Oh, okay, first a note on preview issues before I talk about the cover. Uh, 
from 1980 to 1985, DC occasionally included 16-page previews of new titles that were inserted into selected issues of established titles. These previews were inserted into the center of the standard issues with one page serving as a cover uh, to its own story. They were a bonus insert and uh, didn't add to the standard cover price of the book, which, by the by, is 50 cents. 50 cents, no matter what side of the border you're on. Gosh, I miss those times. The first of these previews appeared in DC Comics Presents number 26, and that featured no less than the debut of the new Teen Titans, initiated the celebrated run of Marv Wolfman and the aforementioned George Perez, which in short order became DC's best-selling title in the early 1980s, so there was a track record on why they carried on with these preview issues for a little while. Now, many of the preview inserts uh, were for licensed toy line tie-ins. So our first looks at things like the Masters of the Universe, Mask, Atari Force, Flash Force 2000, and Lightning Racers. A few of those are household words, a few are not. I guess they didn't quite make the cut in the toys that made us. Uh, were seen in these previews before they went on to their own new, own books. And preview editions also gave us the first peek at things from the DC Universe as well. Uh, Dial H for Hero. The new Dial H for Hero, rather. Blue Devil. A-Rack. Night Force. Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo Crew. And one of the previews also served to debut a new costume for Wonder Woman. Changing from the, uh, the eagle breastplate to the, uh, the twin W's that served as the costume for the what we would call the Earth-1 Wonder Woman while we still had an Earth-1 Wonder Woman. And of course, Preview gave us of the All-Star Squadron. Back to the cover here, the trade dress on the cover is interesting. A banner across the top says, All-Star Squadron Preview, V-U-E, pull out! Uh, the sidebar exclaims, Extra! Meet the sensational all-new All-Star Squadron in a free 16-page comic. And it's got a little, uh, uh, what do you call that? Thumb, thumbnail of the, uh, of the, of the cover of the insert. And it continues with, An instant collector's item from the new DC. Okay, new DC, you just said pull out at the top, and then you said collector's item. So DC hype machine, you can't pull out the center guts of a comic and call it a collector's item. I really hope nobody actually pulled any of these out. But you never know. The creative team for both this preview, and I'll just say this once so that we don't have to say it two, two times, uh, and the subsequent All-Star Squadron number one will be the writer, of course, Roy Thomas. Penciler, the equally legendary Rich Buckler. The anchor, the not yet legendary Jerry Ordway. But we will get to know him very, very quickly in the pages of All-Star Squadron. Uh, the colorist is Carl Gafford, letterer is John Costanza, and the editor 
is Len Wein, who we spoke quite a bit of in our uh, Leading Comics Number One uh, podcast. So, the cover to the preview has members of the JSA of the era, active, honorary, and future members like Wonder Woman. And I might as well just list them from left to right. We've got Green Lantern. Of course, this is the Earth 2. This is Earth 2, so these are Earth 2 versions. Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Below him is Superman. And below Superman is the ever-beloved Johnny Thunder and his Pink Thunderbolt. Uh, Hawkman is flying towards us, uh, Dr. Midnight, The Flash, Earth 2, Wonder Woman, uh, looking very Linda Carter-like, The Atom, Dr. Fate in his half-helmet, The Sandman in his purple and gold outfit, we have The Spectre, and we have a non-JSA member named The Shining Knight. Ooh, he snuck in here. And, of course, it's DC, so we have to have a Batman, don't we? Well, it's just a good thing that this isn't a 2021 preview where we probably have Harley Quinn and the Joker on there as well. Don't get me started. And our heroes are rushing out from a montage of the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. and the American flag in backdrop. We open in the evening of December 6, 1941. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his aide Harry Hopkins activate a special alert that buzzes unheard in the empty headquarters of the absent Justice Society of America. It's time, Harry. Are you certain, sir? Perhaps? No, old friend, we've already waited as long as we dare. Perhaps too long. But why in heaven's name don't they answer? Why? Across the country in Los Angeles, the Flash, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman are competing in a charity foot race. This is a callback to a comic that would be on the stands in December of 1942 called Comic Cavalcade, which was a bonus quarterly comic that would feature for about six years depictions of those three heroes, Flash, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman, and other heroes from the All-American Stable, in some kind of activity. And in fact, number one has these three in a race. And the judge for the race is none other than Wildcat, who also appears in a story in the same comic. This is very much the kind of connectedness with the Golden Age that we will come to expect from Roy Thomas in this title. But wait, there's more. The race is being covered by newsreel reporter Johnny Chambers and his sidekick Tubby Watts, the first of a series of bystanders to the JSA team activities that we are going to see in this brief tale. After the race, the three are attacked by a chalk-faced monster that none yet recognize because they have never yet met Solomon Grundy, who defeats the trio in combat. Grundy then follows the orders of a mysterious voice to deliver the unconscious heroes to him. Back at the White House, President Roosevelt makes another attempt to contact the JSA, this time by telephone, but they get no answer. This is when Harry Hopkins makes a bold suggestion. I have an idea. You know that so-called Laws Legionnaires? Harry is 
talking, of course, about the heroes that are in his vision in this panel. From left to right, the Crimson Avenger. The Vigilante, we've heard of him. Speedy, Green Arrow, Shining Knight, Star-Spangled Kid, and Stripesy. In an editor's note, Len Wein informs us that the Law's Legionnaires are later known as the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And in my own editor's note to the editor's note, as I explained in our previous episode covering Leading Comics number one, it was Len Wayne who actually normalized that name for this team. Back to Harry Hopkins. I know they don't possess the sheer muscle of the Justice Society, boys, but perhaps if we could reach them... But the President quashes calling in the Magnificent Seven. But we can't reach them, Harry. No, the JSA is our best bet. Maybe our only hope. If only someone would answer. Anyone. Yikes. The President of the United States just threw shade on the seven soldiers. I guess there just wasn't time to run an ad in the personals column to get a hold of them. Back to our story. In New York City, a rare television broadcast features the world-famed journalist Libby Lawrence reporting on a rail strike, which the TV's owner, Wesley Dodd, switches off to talk to his house guests, Johnny Thunder and Ted Knight. And yes, somebody did let Johnny Thunder into their house. Dodd's muses about flying or sorry, Ted Knight muses about flying over to check the JSA's messages. But then, a pirate ship appears out of the sky. No, that's not a Monty Python reference to the Crimson Permanent Assurance Company. A another unrecognized villain has appeared. The Sky Pirate. The Sandman in his Kirby-esque purple and gold costume and Starman, who are both regular stars in adventure comics, change into their super attire to respond. And say, you'd think they'd ask Johnny Thunder and his magical pink friend to help too. So with Johnny in a terribly compromising position riding his thunderbolt, the pirate ship is boarded and the sky pirate nails them all into unconsciousness with a gas gun. Gee, Sandman, don't you have a gas gun? You might have seen that coming. And if you'd had your original costume on, you know, with the gas mask and all, well... Just saying. At his mystic tower in Salem, Massachusetts, the greatly depowered Dr. Fate, wearing the definitely unmystical half-helmet that he was using at this point in his publishing history, sees trouble coming in his orb of Naboo, in the form of his old enemy, Wotan. As his love, Inza Kramer yells, Fate leaves the tower for the inevitable showdown and flings his indestructible body into the mid-air of form of Wotan. Or so Fate thinks. For when the two bodies inevitably hit the ground, we see that the other body, as it were, if it is a body, is that of the Spectre. And all it took for Wotan, another name for Odin, by the way, was to pull a Loki on both the Master of Order and the right hand of God, God to fool in themselves into taking each other out of the battle. More fun indeed, as Wotan drags his prey home. 
So on a lonely volcanic island in the South Pacific, U.S. Navy Ensign Red Rod Riley, in his dress whites, is trying without any success to convince his geologist sister Danette to leave her research and board his cruiser that is returning to base. Meanwhile, in stately Gotham City, the world's finest trio, you may know them as Superman, Batman, and Robin, are on hand to cut the ribbon. Robin's cutting a ribbon. There's a joke there somewhere. On a new USO Club, United Services Organization. That's the entertainment uh, wing of the uh, United States military. When they are attacked by a weirdly clad character calling himself Professor Zodiac, with the K, don't you know? Who changed the dynamic duo into toddlers, trapped in their oversized costume, and knocks Superman unconscious with the radiation of some glowing green rock that's never been seen before in this chronological continuity, and I'm sure we'll never hear of it again. And Zodiac escapes with his captives. Now we're back in Washington again, where FDR telephones a gangly FBI liaison in New York, conspicuous by his lack of snap rim fedora, and orders the agent to check out what's wrong at JSA headquarters. Not far away at the Lincoln Memorial, we meet those all-American characters the Adam and Dr. Midnight, along with their JSA chairman on loan from Flash Comics, Hawkman who at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night are playing tourist, admiring the colossal image of the great emancipator, Honest Abe. Then they go for a couple of beers and a club sandwich downtown before retiring for the evening. No, just kidding. Yes, they are attacked. Of course they are. By a villain that, of course, they don't know. Called the monster, because of course that's what a villain calls himself. Who shoots a death ray, because of course he does. And of course the monster knocks all three unconscious and drags the trio off. No, 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 just kidding. The Adam hasn't read the rest of the script, so then he socks the Mr. Hyde-like monster, who devolves back into Dr. Jekyll and falls to the ground. Then he disappears, leaving the three to ponder the meaning of this, as a shadowy man in a broad hat and a trench coat watches the fight and walks away as his feet clank on the concrete realizing this is not yet clobbering time. Now, in the Oval Office, the clock strikes midnight. It seems time has run out on us, Harry, old friend. I'd hoped to have the powerful Justice Society with their formidable powers standing by, forming some sort of all-star squadron to help out in the present emergency, but... Are you really certain they'll be needed so soon, Mr. President? You've read the decoded message from which we've learned the Japanese will deliver to our Secretary of State tomorrow, Harry. It's complete enough for me to know. This means war. Well, we are a democracy and a peaceful people, but we have a good record. With God's help, we'll come through this as we've come through so much before. Outside, as a Washington Globe newspaper bundle hits the street, the headline of December 7th, 1941 reveals 
what the emergency will be when we continue our story in All-Star Squadron number one. National Rail Strike begins today. That has to be what FDR needs the Justice Society of America to assist with, a rail strike. Will the Justice Society be able to stop that railway strike? We shall soon learn. And now we move on to our All-Star Squadron number one review. Our cover date, September 1981. Uh, on sale date was June 18th, 1981 for 50 cents and I purchased it for that 50 cents. Not too long after June 18th and if I had to make it probably a guess, hazard a guess, it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of the uh, 28th, 29th, or 30th of June, and I remember that because it was just as soon as I had gotten out of school, and I happened to go to the next town to try to look for a job. I uh, did not find one, stopped it at a little place called the Farmer's Market for a Slurpee or something, and I saw this comic book, and even though I was not a comics reader at the time, I had been on a hiatus for a couple of years because comics were just too cool for my high school persona, at least after the DC implosion. But I saw this from across the way and I it just drew me right over and I knew right away that this was the Golden Age Hawkman and the Atom and Dr. Midnight on the cover and I knew what that meant. I didn't quite understand that this was going to be a World War II setting, I didn't care. I plunked that 50 cents down, I went home, and I was just flabbergasted that finally we were going to see this group in their prime. Not 50, 60 year old people teaming up with the JLA now and then. This was going to be these characters on their earth in their setting. So the cover of this, credited to Reg Buckler, and it's an iconic cover. It has been, uh, what's the word we used? Um, homaged several times. Uh, if you look into Roy Thomas's books on um, basically his years in covering All Stars comics and this series, Infinity Inc. and some others, uh, he does have an interesting article where it talks about all of the different homages that have been done to the, with this cover. And it, it's almost become as iconic as the All-Star Comics number three cover, the round table one. And a table appears in this one as well, but it's not round. It's a rectangular table. Uh, as I said, the Earth-2 Hawkman in his original uh, helmet uh, with the beak and the, the tusks that came right down over top of his mouth. Uh, Dr. Midnight off to the side and the Atom and I assume Dr. Midnight has his infrared goggles on because there's a spotlight uh, popping down from the top and there is a table covered in basically colored glossy photographs and there are a few on the wall as well and uh, the names are on here so the uh, the DC bullet here 
And uh, the title goes, Who Will Be the Heroes of the All-Star Squadron? Which I think we all know is the inside joke that we cannot abbreviate this as we do the JLA, the JSA, the FF, and so on. It's the fabulous first issue of an all-new Roy Thomas, Rich Buckler sensation. Rich Buckler does the cover, if I haven't said that already, and I think I have. Uh, left to right of these photographs, Wildcat, Shining Knight, Green Arrow, Johnny Quick, complete with speed lines, Batman and Robin, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. So membership is open to sidekicks, apparently. Uh, on the table, uh, well, we'll just go to left to right. Uh, we have Crimson Avenger. And since we are still in the consideration mode, yeah, we have Johnny Thunder to Thunderbolt. Yay. Plastic Man. The Spectre. Green Lantern. Wonder Woman. Liberty Bell. Superman. Captain Triumph. Who? Yes, Captain Triumph. Interestingly, Captain Triumph will never appear in this series. <laughs> So this is definitely a cutting series. And by the way, Captain Tri Triumph was a character from Quality Comics. And speaking of Quality Comics, underneath the logo, uh, back on the wall, I, I kind of neglected to go past her, we see only a leg and a piece of green cape. Well, the leg pretty much tells us that that's Phantom Lady because bare legs and bare other things are kind of her shtick. We have the Flash, also with speed lines. Buried under here is a character called the Tarantula. Also the Liberty Bell and the Sandman. Oh, it's interesting that the Sandman's picture in his purple and gold costume are covering up this Tarantula guy and we can only see his yellow leg. And we will discover, spoilers, in a number of issues that Sandman and the Tarantula's costumes at this point in time are almost identical. Dr. Fate in his half helmet again. Robot Man. And we will stop as Dr. Midnight is considering uh, an ornery ranny in a cowboy hat and a mask. And we know that could only be our old pal, the Vigilante. Which we probably wondered what this podcast was all about. Yes, we will always stop and talk when we see the Vigilante. So that's the cover. Who's going to be in this? The answer will astound you. Spoilers. Everybody, except Captain Triumph. Even Johnny Thunder's going to make this cut. So on our splash page, we have none other than Hawkman. Uh, we know that that's going to be one of Roy Thomas's favorites in this book. He will be slated to appear in every issue. And that's a sort of a callback of Roy's own in that Hawkman was the only character to ever appear in every issue of All-Star Comics in the Justice Society feature. So our story, we learn, is called The World on Fire. Now, where have we heard that recently? In the weeest hour of December 7th, 1941, Hawkman flies from Washington to New York and arrives at JSA headquarters at 1 a.m., and I like that our timings are very specific here. 
It's the sort of how a historian builds chronologies. Now, Hawkman's teammates aren't at headquarters, but the FBI liaison called by FDR, he is there. And he's no ordinary fed. It's Plastic Man! Plastic Man! Hi, Max Romero. By the way, look for the Plastic Cast if you're interested in Plastic Man. Now, after the obligatory fight, uh, Hawkman and Plastic Man fly to West Dodd's penthouse where news reports flash back of JSA members being assaulted and kidnapped by villains, as we learned of in the preview edition. We're not going to go back through that. Uh, Plastic Man urges them to answer a summons from the president and fly to Washington at once. Now, en route, they run into a herd of winged drones. A flock of winged drones, a murder of winged drones. Uh, what is the plural of drones? At any rate, our drones are led by the key. A swarm of winged drones, of course. Easily defeated, the King Bee drops enough clues to fill in the reader, though not Hawkman or Plastic Man, that he is from the future. But then, a concealed bomb explodes, killing the bee, knocking out Hawkman who is saved when Plastic Man forms a parachute and allows him to drift to the ground. While in a certain room in the White House, 200 miles away. Sorry, Mr. Hopkins, still no word from the Justice Society. And now, even Plastic Man's disappeared. I've got orders to wake the President the instant we contact the JSA. Keep trying, boys, or else Sunday, December 7th, 1941 is liable to go down as the most tragic day in American history. Uh, whatever you say, sir. Got old Harry, always exaggerating. By the way, speaking of history, I am going to go down in history right now as the only podcaster to not stop and perform a Hostess Fruit Pie ad. Which, by the way, is Batgirl in Fruit Pies for Magpies. I'll leave that for Stella. Elsewhere, the time-displaced swordsman, the Shining Light Knight lands on one of the Hawaiian Isles. Hmm. Last issue, we were on an uncharted isle. Now we're in a Hawaiian island. Surely Hawaii is completely charted, but don't call me Shirley. While in flight, Sir Justin is mired in thought because in comics, when you are traveling, especially by winged horse, you must think in comics panels of your entire recent life. Especially when you are inexplicably flying several thousand miles off the Pacific coast on the cusp of a cataclysmic landmark world event that will happen nearby. In other words, we don't know why Sir Justin is out here. He never tells us. But let's silently survey Sir Justin's shining soliloquy. Oh, winged victory, my most valiant steed. How my heart does rejoice to see you freed from the restraints which hide your wings so that you may soar once again. Verily, this century seems not made for the likes of us twain. Methinks oft-times twould have been best had we both lived and died our lives in the days of my liege, Lord Arthur of Britain. Instead of being cast adrift as we were in a prison of ice, within which we slumbered for a thousand years, aye, in half as long again. 
Still, we have found friends in this troubled time, have we not? The masked ones who form with me the Law's Legionnaires. Even King Arthur, meseems, would have welcomed such as the Vigilante, the Crimson Avenger, the Star-Spangled Kid, and the Falcon-Eyed Green Arrow to his noble court. All the same, my by my halidam, a volcano smolders on yonder isle, where none should be. More, both a boat and a camp of some kind do lie at its very base. Down, victory, mayhaps the vessel master has no need of the shining knight. Yet no scion of the table round may turn his back on any who might be in need of succor. Oh, the camp! Tis most passing strange. It seems deserted and no one answers by hail. Perchance the I... And that's when an automatic pistol was put to Sir Justin's head. But let's stop for a moment. Sir Justin's recent musings to himself here, my listeners, along with the cover, will be the sum total of our seven soldiers' involvement in this issue. And in fact, even in this arc of stories in the initial run. Once again, our heroes and my concern, the Vigilante, will far too often be a part of the wallpaper of this series, and it will be a bit of time before we once again see the Seven appear as a group in these pages. Justin, however, will fare better, and Roy will use him as a part of the core All-Star Squadron team, with our other friends coming in as long-distance members over time. But don't worry, we'll leave a light on for the Seven Soldiers, or the Legionnaires, or whatever we're calling them at any point in time. But back to the gun to the head, and we might as well wrap up this story while we are here. The gun belongs to geologist Danette Riley, the flaming-haired uh, beauty who just happens to look like Dan Thomas. After their mutual disagreement is over, Danette Riley tells him about extraordinary seismic activity on the island. Even more disturbing is that up until a few days ago, this island didn't even exist. Ah, there we go. That's why it's an uncharted island. I knew we would explain it. Helpfully, Sir Justin whacks the side of the volcano with his sword, cleaving away some rock to reveal an unseen cavern, which he had no way of knowing was there, and which Danette's trained eyes proves to be artificial lava. How do you make artificial lava? It's probably from the future. Now, leaving the horse outside, they investigate the cave and they encounter Professor Zodiac and Solomon Grundy, who knocks out Justin, while Zodiac's universal solvent dissolves Danette's handgun. Then Grundy backhands her into unconsciousness. Lots of concussions in the Golden Age, folks. When the recovering Sir Justin and Danette awaken, they are chained to the cavern floor with conventional shackles that are, and, and they themselves are glowing with Wotan's Orabons. Orabons. I think you can get that at your drugstore. They are confronted by Perdegaton, a jack-booted leather-clad bully calling himself the Master of Worlds and Time. There was a lot of that going around the planet in 1941. Hirohito, Hitler, Mussolini, probably even that guy in... Uh, uh, Purr is flanked by his bickering henchmen, 
Professor Zodiac, Solomon Grundy, Sky Pirate, and Wotan. After lamenting the loss of the monster and Queen Bee, yeah, that, that there's a loss there. Struts around, he, Degaton struts around the throne and boldly declares that he is from the future, 1947. To which the twice shining captive Justin, the knight from the seventh century, is astounded by Merlin's magics. Which he misspells with a K, just to prove that he's from the 7th century. That 1947, though, that just knocks him right out. Also astounding is that Degaton plans to... Conquer the world! That is also period correct behavior. So now we switch to Oahu. A 800 hours local time and the U.S. naval base of Pearl Harbor, where Danette's brother, Ensign Rod Riley... Secretly, the masked crime fighter Firebrand is being chauffeured from Pearl Harbor to Wheeler Field by his old bodyguard sidekick, the now enlisted sailor Slugger Dunn. They arrive just as the Japanese dive bombers are attacking the base. When their jeep flips over and Slugger's leg is broken, they can't get back to their ship, the USS Arizona. Well, Rod. I've been to the Arizona, I can tell you. It's not going anywhere. And presently, neither are you. Riley catches at least three machine gun slugs from a uh, strafing zero through his torso. And Slugger Dunn is also seemingly killed. Meanwhile, an ocean and a continent away, we are back in Washington, D.C., where Dr. Midnight and the Atom are taking in a football game. The Redskins versus the Eagles, in full costume. Uh, the Adam and Dr. Midnight are in costume. Uh, the Redskins and the Eagles are playing football. As the Adam gets into the cheering, Midnight is more interested in the intercom announcements, as some major government and military brass are being paged to contact their offices. Doc finds an old friend that's an FBI agent who invites them to a phone call hookup with his boss, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, would there be any other, with the office in Honolulu where over the phone they can hear the, the cataclysm of the Japanese attack. Hoover tells the JSA members that the president has been trying to reach them and wants them at the White House immediately. But when the Adam can't open a locked steel blast door, the masked figure who has been shadowing them reveals himself as the mysterious Robot Man, who rips open the door for them and offers the JSAers a 40 mile an hour piggyback ride to the White House. Meanwhile, outside the gates of 1600 Pennsylvania are Johnny Chambers, Tubby Watts, and Libby Lawrence. Johnny and Libby accidentally collide with each other. Uh, uh, that, that's fine, but okay, wait, were, were, were Johnny and Tubby in Los Angeles just last night covering the charity foot race between Wonder Woman, GL, and The Flash? Uh, trains don't move that fast even today. Now I'm sure Johnny could have run the course, but uh, how would he get his buddy Tubby to Washington? Uh, I suppose he could have rode on his back. That's disturbing to think of. Or they could have taken a TWA or a Pan Am flight. But I'm not even sure that would be reliable enough to get him there. But food for thought. But because it's comics, we are in Washington just a few hours after we were in Los Angeles. 
At any rate, when Hawkman and Plastic Man fly over the fence, Johnny Chambers heads for the landscaping, where he speaks his magic formula and strips his suit coat down to a costume. Simultaneously, in another bush, Libby Lawrence also changes into her jodfers. When the Marine Guards at the White House don't recognize Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick literally sweeps her off her feet and zooms her by the sentry post, identifying himself as the much better known superhero, The Flash. With that blur, who else could it be? But Liberty Bell isn't fooled, and both Liberty and Johnny work out each other's identities. They are reporters, after all. And this saves us all from three seasons of Lois and Clark. Long story short, the seven assembled heroes are taken to the Oval Office to meet the President, who briefs them on what he knows about the recent attack on Pearl Harbor. The ongoing attack on Pearl Harbor at this point. Now with this, FDR has changed his plan since yesterday and expects soon to be at war with Japan. In addition, with Nazi Germany due to a secret accord with the British. Now let's listen in to what FDR has to say to our assembly. Good afternoon, my friends. Forgive me for not rising to greet you, or even smiling. I see you of the JSA have been joined by a few other loyal patriots. So I'll get right to the point. For those of you who don't already know, Gentlemen, I've just learned that the Japanese have attacked our military base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. So far, we can guess that Guam, Wake Island, and the Philippines will also soon be under attack momentarily. When the heroes offer to go out to the Pacific and, and protect those islands, No, my friends, I've not called you here to send you overseas. At least not yet. Last night it was my intention to ask you to rush to the Pacific and stand by to repel just such a dastardly assault. But now your country has need of you, all of you, in a far different way. I want you of the Justice Society to mobilize every one of this nation's costumed heroes, men and women, into a single super powerful unit, a sort of all-star squadrons, so to speak, responsible to no one but myself. You see, you mystery men are one of America's greatest natural resources, which we must husband carefully for the coming struggle with the Nazis. You, Plastic Man, will serve as FBI liaison to the all-star squadron. I'm asking you seven, here right now, to fly without delay to the west coast. We don't believe the Japanese have the naval strength to attack the mainland, but at this point we obviously can't afford to take any chances. I wish I could suggest how last night's capture of so many JSA members is tied in with this sneak attack, but alas. And with that, Liberty Bell picks up the phone to ask the keeper of the Liberty Bell, one Mr. Tom Revere, to ring that aforementioned bell, after which Liberty Bell stands fully charged. Next stop, the West Coast. That evening, 
per Degaton does in fact launch an attack on San Francisco from his gigantic submersible aircraft carrier using submersible Japanese zeros painted with the military insignias of the rising sun. Our aircraft carrier has sailed 2,000 miles from Hawaii in about 12 hours. But remember, this is per Degaton. He's been to 1947. Oh, Sir Justin and Miss Riley are also aboard the ship. To be continued. But not by me. I'm already writing this book in real life. And as I've said before, use this opportunity to go over to the A World on Fire All-Star Squadron podcast for a better read through these two stories from Herman and Billy and all subsequent issues of the All-Star Squadron. I'll dip my toe back into All-Star whenever Vigilante appears in my chronology or when the Seven Soldiers of Victory appear as a group. So thanks everybody. Next time, we're going to be back into Action Comics. We're going to be right ensconced in 1942. An adventure with the Vigilante, a 13-pager. And it's a big story because we're going to meet a very new significant character. That is going to be a, uh, very critical to the ongoing story of the Vigilante. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, keep him flying. Buy bonds if you can find them. And we will see you next time. Back at the ranch here on Prairie Justice. The Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Partners, you've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. All materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the Vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook, under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email, you can go to vigilantecast at gmail.com. Website is www.rangergordsroundup, all one word, at .wordpress.com. And we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the Cowboy Crusader. Vaya con Dios, compadres, eh? Cause he's the last